our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Big question I get asked is when did it all start? And why? Ladies and gentlemen, it so happens I've spent my life fixing things for people. As a child, you just thought this guy can make things happen. He knew everybody. I thank you for everything you do, for every good cause. How on earth do you raise 10 million pounds? In three years. With Jim, you accepted things as normal, but it was abnormal. That is supposed to be me. What did I ever do to you that you would draw that picture of me? He's very intuitive. You do a terrific job, Jimmy. No, that's all front. That's all lies. <laughs> he was making the screen in front of him. It's like you couldn't see through it. He knew fame and power gave him every door. I am a voluntary helper. Sometimes, when nobody's looking, I help the lasses. It turns out, everywhere he'd been, there'd been abuse. I've got to see if they can catch me out, ladies and gentlemen. But they can't really catch me out. I've got eyes all over the head, you see. Picture that emerged people who were in a state of paralysis. Jimmy Savile has been knighted by the Queen. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much, Jim. The allegations are shocking the entire country. The nation created Jimmy Savile. I'm not in your world. I'm not constrained by anything. Let me tell you, you really are missing something. In fact, you're missing everything. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Many of you have asked me to cover the victims of the prolific serial abuser, Jimmy Savile. I talked about the case briefly on the Forgotten Victims series, as he visited Peter Sutcliffe, P.S., and I thought that odd. Well, the trailer you just heard is from the Netflix documentary, A British Horror Story, Jimmy Savile. It was trending as the number one show in the UK. It's also available in the US too, so please watch it, but be warned, it makes for a very disturbing and concerning watch, not just because of what he did and the volume of victims, but because of how he got away with it for so long. Both are horror stories in their own right, and when I watched the Netflix show, I was very impressed with Marion Jones. He, along with his colleague, Liz McKean, were the journalists who investigated Savile first off, and they exposed his vile grooming and sexual offending behaviour. Now, I contacted Marion, and he agreed to speak with me, and he's shared many illuminating facts that he discovered, and you'll hear much more in this interview. Also, I would have asked Liz to join us, but sadly, she died in 2017, 
And it's important to pay tribute to her for her hard work and determination in exposing Savile. And you'll hear more about her too in this interview. Marion Jones is now the editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. He spent many years running investigations for the BBC at Newsnight and Panorama. He won the London Press Award Scoop of the Year for his part in the Jimmy Savile revelations. And just a heads up, we discuss sexual abuse in these episodes, and so listener discretion is advised. OK, with that having been said, let's dive in. Hi, Marion. Thank you so much for coming on Crime Analyst and talking to me today. Please introduce yourself for my listeners. I'm Marion Jones. I'm a very experienced investigative journalist with the BBC and now with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism in London. Well, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day. And first of all, I just wanted to say that having watched the Netflix show and knowing about this case, because I'm former New Scotland Yard, I thought you were excellent in it. And I think it was a really needed voice, actually, to historically put us in the picture of of what has gone on, because actually there's so much to this story. And, And one of the things for me was that There weren't perhaps too many victims' testimonies in it, which normally, for me, everything I do is putting the victim at the centre of everything. And I felt we heard from Sam Brown right at the end. And I'm sure you've got a sense of why that is, but also just how many victims are we talking about in this case? Well, the official number is 31 rapes and over 400 sexual assaults over 400 people who were sexually assaulted, some of them multiple times. However, there must be at least 100 who had died before Savile was revealed in 2012. There are at least 100 who have not gone to the authorities, but have gone to people like myself. So that takes you up to 600. As you will also know, the vast majority of victims of sexual assaults never report this to anyone ever. So I think we're talking in the 1,000 to 2,000 region in terms of sexual assault people and, you know, over 100 rapes. He was just prolific, wasn't he? And I think that they're really important points to make because whatever we know about and you know about, because you really were the starting point for lifting the lid on what was going on, is tip of the iceberg. And we know that sex offenders are very prolific. We know that many victims don't come forward. And we know actually that when they do come forward, particularly historical child sexual abuse, it tends to be in their third or fourth decade of life. So you don't tend to hear from them early on. So I'm I'm really pleased that you just situated the, the victims. And I do really want to dedicate this episode to the victims, many of whom have not come forward. I know that. And they don't want their voice going formally on record. And, and I felt really that's what was lacking in the Netflix documentary, the British horror story, Jimmy Savile. And Sam Brown's testimony was, oh, it was so distressing. I have to say it was just absolutely horrific. And I know that you've heard many times from many victims and you and Liz. Well, let's quickly talk about Liz McKean as well, because you and she were really the double act, weren't you? How did you get together? And let's situate Liz in this too, because the two of you have just done such incredible investigative journalist work on on this case and lifting the lid. Yes, well, Liz originally came across from being a breakfast TV presenter 
in about 2000 to Newsnight, which was then really must-watch television in Britain. Uh, if you were interested in the world, you wanted to watch Newsnight before you went to bed. And I suppose I slightly looked down on her. You know, I thought she was what we often call as producers, gobs on sticks, you know, just the people who appear as presenters. I very quickly found out I got her completely wrong. She was a really good journalist. I think one of the first stories we did was when I was looking at the cover-up in the Catholic Church about paedophile priests, uh, which was led by the head of the Catholic Church in England and Wales, Cormac Murphy O'Connor. And we went to look for a priest who'd just been released from prison. There was a mix-up. We ended up following the wrong priest. And uh, we had a very serious complaint made about us. And some reporters get very worried by that. She thought it was very funny. And uh, I realised she was the sort of person I could work with. And we then worked on story after story. Obviously, she worked with other producers. I worked with other reporters but yeah we did a lot of really great stuff uh like on the rogue oil company trafigura who poisoned a load of people in ivory coast and very often we'd go off on trips and mad things would always happen to us and she was just brilliant to work with she was also great on screen and she could write a very good script i might do a first draft of a script but she would always hone it and really make it perfect and unfortunately, Liz isn't around anymore, is she? She tragically died. I mean, very sad in 2017. Yes, uh, it was very sad. I had to write uh, some of her obits, which first time I've had to do that for a friend. I also wrote an entry for the Dictionary of National Biography, which is the sort of library version of record of the great and the good. Uh, and I did think she'd have found it funny on one side that she'd appeared in that and on the other hand, being quite chuffed that, you know, people were recognising what she'd done. And she really, I mean, from listening to some interviews with her, I just felt, and I, I didn't know her, but certainly her compassion and her strength of character and mental fortitude really came through, that she really felt strongly about the victims' voices being heard and building the trust and confidence of, of the women the girls, was really important to her. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, she was outraged that our editor talked about the only evidence we had was just the women. That absolutely rightly outraged her. She was volcanically angry about that. And, you know, this is during the phase when we were arguing that the story had to go out and the BBC was trying to suppress it. And Liz would storm into the editor's office, leave the door open so that the whole office could hear what was being said and rip into this fundamentally misogynistic attitude. And not just misogynistic, they didn't care about any of the victims. You know, they were, they were weak people, they were poor people, they were unimportant people. And this sort of fundamentally is why the British establishment was not interested in any of these people and why they were far more interested in the celebrities who could deliver big fundraising for charities, huge audiences for BBC, TV and radio. And they made a balance. You know, bosses at the BBC knew all the way back in 1973 what Savile was doing. They didn't try to stop him. All they worried about was if it came out in the press. And so long as it didn't come out in the press, they were happy to keep him on Saturday night you know, entertaining the families of Britain, 20 million people, which in 
Britain is a huge TV audience, watching him every Saturday night and watching his show where he appeared to be a, a father Christmas figure in a show called Jim Will Fix It. Yes, and I remember that very well, growing up with Jim Will Fix It and Top of the Pops. And I have to say, for me, my radar, even when I was young, was tweaking. I just felt he was very creepy and that he was playing a part, this kind of zany, eccentric character. And I feel that even more strongly now in terms of the fact he was playing a part rather than we weren't seeing the true him. And I think what the Netflix show did well, there were some things that I want to talk to you about what I didn't think it did well, but I felt that what it did well was situating, for example, the little girl who had drawn a picture of Savile. My God, I just got chills when you see this picture of a monster and he says, why did you draw that of me? What did I do to you? And she says, everything. And the chills, I literally got, you know, the tingly chills, which was my creepometer. Why wasn't that followed up on? My goodness, there were these just truth moments all the time. And for him, it wasn't just leakage. He was enjoying the fact that he knew what was really going on. And all these other people were just going along with him and laughing at the things that he was saying, like, my court case starts on Thursday. My goodness, it was all in plain sight, wasn't it? He didn't really try and hide too much. Well, a number of people have pointed out since that what he kept repeating was comes up next Thursday. And if you look at the initials of that, I think he was deliberately giving a message. Right. Yeah. And the duping delight, the enjoyment. I mean, for me, it talks to the power and control and most likely psychopathy. And I'll tell you, actually, I did meet when I was training probation up in Yorkshire. I met his driver and the driver was very interesting because this was when it was all breaking. And he said to me, um, I used to drive Jimmy Savile. He knew exactly where I was going and who I was talking to. And I said, oh, all right. And he said, I used to feel very proud about that. And now, and he said, look, I've got this picture of me and Jimmy in the car. And he said, I, it used to feel such a wonderful thing to do. And I always felt he was such a great guy, Laura, and I just don't understand it. I just don't, I never saw that side to him. And I said, well, what did you find out about him then? And um, he said, well, he always asked me lots of questions. He was always interested in me and my family. And I said, okay, so that increased your likability, but what did you actually know about him? And he said, he looked at me in the mirror. He said, you know what? I don't actually know one thing about him. He never shared anything. Every conversation was about me, my family, my wife, everything that I was doing. And I said, well, that's a classic technique, actually, because everybody's favorite subject is me, myself, and I, and it increases likability. And he knew fully well that would increase likability, but in reality, you knew nothing about him. And it totally flummoxed this guy that he'd been driving him for so long and knew not one thing about him in reality. I mean, this goes back to when I first met Jimmy Savile, when I was in my teens. My aunt ran a very strange institution called Duncroft, and it started out as a prison, really, for underage girls who are thought to have very high intelligence and who were going to have psychotherapy, and at the end of that, they would be turned into useful members of society it was a cross, really, between a finishing school and a prison. And it was a one-off institution, very, very strange. 
And once a year or twice a year, they would have a big garden party to raise funds to get minibuses to take the girls out, you know, out of Duncroft on visits. And celebrities would turn up at that. Minor royals, Princess Marina, Princess Alexandra, 50s and 60s TV and film stars, people like James Robertson Justice, who was a very popular British actor, John Gregson, who was in every British war movie. All these people would turn up. So it wasn't odd that Savile was there. What was odd was he kept turning up. So every time I went there to visit my aunt and my grandmother, who was by then living with her, we'd see his Rolls Royce parked in the gravel. Quite often we'd bump into him. And as a teenager, I didn't think he was evil, but I thought he was hiding something. So behind that screen of catchphrases, as it happens, boys and girls, and the shell suit, it felt like you couldn't see what was really there. And a lot of other people have described this feeling of not knowing television. Maybe you have a a persona, which is your public persona, and you hide what is behind that. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's thrivecosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. 
Yes, I mean, it's a, a classic diversion and distraction technique. Don't look over here, look over here. And I, I still remember all his catchphrases, you know, the now, then, now, then, and everything was about distraction. But he did leak, and I don't even think it was leakage. He did actually say a lot of things. And I think what the Netflix docu-series did quite well was actually getting that footage and just showing it all together and running it together. But what I felt it didn't do, I mean, particularly well, I mean, it did tend to situate him and there was a big fanfare about who he was and career-wise and his charity status, celebrity status. The victims, I felt we didn't hear enough from them and we didn't really hear enough about the BBC cover-up. I always say it's one thing to have a case that is utterly horrific and heinous, but it's another thing to cover it up and suppress it that I don't feel it really got to the heart of what went on. And, and you lived it and breathed it. This, that was your reality, wasn't it, for, for a long time? That must have been so conflicting. Yes. I mean, I'm told the original cut of that doc was over eight hours. And it wow. did have all the things you'd have liked to have had in it. More victims. Uh, Liz McKean, who gets completely cut out of the story. Hannah Livingston, my researcher, who was also part of our team. All that got cut out as they pared it down. And as, you know, various TV executives looked at it and said, get rid of this, we want more of that, etc. And over that process, yes, and a, and a lot more on what happened at the BBC and how the cover-up happened. All of these things got stripped out of it. I think, though, the effect of that was they made something which I thought was going to be a niche programme, but was number one on Netflix UK, top 10 in many, many countries, it got it over to a huge audience. So it succeeded in that way. And maybe the sort of programme that you would have liked, that I would have liked more, would not have been as successful. I'm really interested to hear that, actually, because I felt that it could have been four or five episodes. And I've talked to my FBI colleagues over here in the States. No one has heard of this case which is really interesting. So it's good that it's on Netflix and it's good that people are accessing it and watching it. But colleagues, they can't understand why, for example, he hasn't had his honours, his awards stripped away. And they couldn't understand certain aspects, i.e. choices of why we're not hearing from the victims. And I guess you know the answers to those things because you were part of that process. But I certainly would have liked to have heard more voices of people affected. I would have loved to have heard Liz's voice as well, actually, because when you live and breathe a, a case like this, and I'm sure it had an impact on her health. I'm sure it had an impact on your health, you know, every day and knowing these things and being suppressed and being outcast basically in an organisation that you believed in, that you believed it stood for integrity and doing the right thing. And that's why you joined it. And then you're starting to understand that, no, it didn't stand for that. And what it really wanted to do, as you said, was give Savile a platform. People were making money and it, it was reciprocal and the fundraising and everything else. But I have to say, what a target-rich environment for someone like him, you know, to create this, almost they're wholesome shows, aren't they, Jim will fix it. Really wholesome, should be great family viewing, but he's using it to draw in young girls and boys. 
And I believe there were some boys as well, weren't there? It wasn't just girls, because it seemed like the ages spanned from very young, some as young as, I think, four or five, but right up to 75 years of age. Is that right? Yes. I mean, on one level, you could say he was indiscriminate, but his number one target group was 13, 14, 15-year-old girls. His number two target group was slightly younger boys. But then he was also an opportunist. If he saw a chance, he would grab it. He was a stalker, really, who, if he saw a chance, he would just grab whatever he could grab. It's interesting, when he was saying about joining an organisation that you believe in and so on, and then finding out things, that sounds a bit like an ex-Scotland Yard person talking there. Yes, it's certainly an ex-New Scotland Yard person talking, for sure. I, I think we share some similar experiences in terms of lifting lids on things and exposing things and joining for the right reasons, actually, and then realising that not everybody's in it for the same agenda, the same reason of... I mean, certainly in the police, for me, it was about protection and keeping victims safe and also prevention. And then you realise not everybody is joined up to achieve that same aim. And some things, particularly if it exposes senior people, then there's a lot of people invested in shutting things down. And and I think with Savile in particular, there were so many organisations, weren't there? It wasn't just about a cover-up in one organisation. It's the BBC, it's the health service, it's the police, it's the Crown Prosecution Service, it's the facilities that he was allowed access to, even having a, an apartment at Broadmoor and just being able to come and go. I mean, it, it's mind-blowing to me, and I'm sure it was to you as you're exposing this across the months and the years. Yes. I mean, he was a very skilled operator. Most paedophiles target individuals. He didn't. He targeted whole institutions. I'm jumping in here because this is a really important point. First of all, I want you to hear from Anne, who is in Stoke Mandeville Hospital. She painfully shares what Jimmy Savile did to her and how hospital staff acted towards her afterwards. Just a heads up, this is upsetting. What I, with the power of hindsight, then happened was what was obviously a very well-practised, rehearsed... It just it, it happened in a few moments. One minute it was kind of standing there, he's pretending to look for these keys, and then he just kind of not violently, I have to say, but forcibly pushed me backwards onto the the, the, the bed, um, the pushed my clothing up, raped me. It was over in a, a few moments, but it, it was it, so shocking, so cause, you know, people, people might ask you, well, why, why didn't you scream? Why didn't it? It, it, it just it, it, it almost happened too quickly for that. You, you it, it was almost like not realizing what was going on for a moment, and then. And then he just got up, went off for a moment, um, I don't know, washed himself or urinate or something, came back and, and just... I mean, the, the, the change of persona 
from the you know the 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 cuddly friendly Jim will fix it thing to the the person that raped me was instant and complete just suddenly this was a a a, a complete predator evil cruel frightening the following day one of the nurses said I, I, I can't quote it exactly but she said she made a reference to um, something to do with good girls and turned, very pointedly looked at me and said, do you know what a good girl is? Um, at that, prior to that, I had been trying to decide whether to tell somebody or not and that, that, that was it. I just felt that it wouldn't, well, I think you victims of, of sexual abuse, rape, we blame ourselves anyway. And um, to have her um, say something like that was just, and I, I never, I, I never told anyone, ever, until um, about 18 months ago. With hindsight, with, in, through the eyes of an adult, I have no doubt at all that, that was, it was happening all the time there. Yeah, I'm sure it just... And, um, so... It's impossible to believe that at least some of the staff didn't know what was going on. Well, they, they knew what was going on. They, they very obviously knew what was going on. Um, and I don't know how they live with themselves, really. Anne makes the point, how could staff sleep at night knowing what they knew? Well, next I want you to hear from Naomi Stanley, a psychiatric nurse who tried to blow the whistle on Savile and tell her bosses about the sexual abuse perpetrated by him. This is what she had to say. Tell me what happened. What, it was, what was it that you heard about Jimmy Savile? Um, what I heard was um, a patient who had been in Bournemouth for eight years um, told me that he had sexually assaulted her um, and that he had then gone on to much younger girls. She said he had a preference for the younger women and that um, the unit where she was had very young women, uh, 16 and even younger than that, I believe. Um, and she had become incredibly angry and upset about it. And she had confronted Jimmy Savile and told him that she was going to report him high up because she believed it was my impression at the time, I can't remember exact words, but my impression I was left with was that she'd felt that it was pointless um, to do anything but go to the top because um, everybody was fully aware of what he was doing and the fact that nothing was being done um, meant that she couldn't trust 
um, the staff who were around to um, do anything about it. And he had laughed in her face, is what I remember that phrase very much, that she said he'd laughed in her face. What made you believe her? Because I could, you know, I... When people tell you about really traumatic things in their lives, particularly that kind of thing, sexual thing, um, you can tell by so many things about their body language, um, their eyes. It was genuine. It was, you know, I'd have laid my life on it. You know, I knew she was telling the truth. I knew it right through to my core, you know, absolutely. And so what did you do? Well, it was difficult because at that time we didn't have, as nurses, the kind of guidelines that we had nowadays. So there was no confidentiality policy. And she had asked me not to tell anyone. And I did make a decision to breach that, which obviously put me in a difficult position uh, with her as well. Um, but I'm, I tried to persuade her, but she wasn't, she was terrified of, Authority. She just wanted to keep her head down and get out, get free again, which I can absolutely understand. But I was really concerned about what she had told me because uh, clearly there were women who were continuing to be sexually assaulted and he had a free reign. She told me that he had his own keys. She told me that he had his own rooms. She told me that he moved freely within the women's unit and around the hospital. She told me that he would come and pick and choose who he wanted. She told him she actually saw him, and so did. He was quite blatant that on one occasion she saw him uh, having sex um, with um, a girl, and I believe my recollection is that she said under the stage, so whether there was some kind of, or behind the stage or something, um, in the theatre that they had. Um, so women were continuing to be sexually assaulted and um, from what she was saying, my impression was that in order for that to be happening in that way, you know, my, the, the obvious conclusion is that people must have been aware. When you went and told someone in authority, presumably. Yeah. Who, who was it that you told and what was the response to you? Um, I told the charge nurse um, where I was working. Um, but again, the culture was very different then. Um, for example, we had a, a, a social club on, in the hospital grounds and I used to go to the canteen at lunch. My charge nurse and many of the particularly male staff um, would go to the social club and you know, I saw them on the rare occasions I did go there. I would see them um, drinking, you know, eight pints. I know beer was lower alcohol then, but it was still, you know, a good eight pints that a lot of them used to drink and come back, you know, drunk. Uh, clearly, very laissez-faire, but sort of actually they were pissed um, back to the ward. So... As a woman, you know, and I think many of the women there did a lot of the legwork and um, 
we weren't valued for our opinions. We weren't encouraged. I wasn't. I didn't feel I was encouraged for my opinions at all. So when you said to the charge nurse, look, I've heard this about Jimmy Savile and his yeah. behaviour at Broadmoor. What did they say to you? What did this charge nurse say to you? He was... Um, thought I was crazy. Um, his, you know, I can't remember the exact words. I just know that he didn't take any notice. I was an irritation. Um, I brought it up on several occasions. Um, I was obsessed with it, <laughs> actually. I was completely obsessed with it. It bothered me tremendously. And um, it bothered me tremendously that he wasn't taking it seriously. So did you um, try and go to someone else? Yeah, I went to the rank above him, which was the nursing officer for the area that our unit was in. And um, so we're not talking about Broadmoor here, of course. We're talking yeah. about another hospital. That's right. So they could perhaps justifiably say, well, this isn't our area. That's Broadmoor. This is us. It's not our responsibility to do anything about it. I don't think there's ever a justification in life if you know that people are being... Um, inhumanely treated and criminally treated. If you hear of that, um, I don't think um, it's right in any era to say um, that's okay because it's happening somewhere else. So he deliberately got in with children's homes, hospitals, places where there were powerless victims where nobody would believe them if they complained. And then on top of that, he put levels of protection. So the first level of protection was with charities. He was raising 10 million pounds for Stoke Mandeville Hospital. They're not gonna to listen to any complaints. He's worth too much to them. BBC, 20 million audiences, he's worth too much. You know, these organizations are either turning a blind eye or they are being told stuff which they don't want to hear. And then the third level of protection, which I think must have come as a huge surprise to new viewers who knew nothing about Savile, was he went right for the top. He had the Prime Minister of the day, Margaret Thatcher, in his pocket, giving him access to Broadmoor and Stoke Mandeville. He had the royal family in his pocket, particularly Prince Charles. So, you know, if you were an ordinary copper, and some 14-year-old girls to you and said they've been assaulted, you're thinking, how am I going to do that? Now, I actually do know police officers who are in that position who went to more senior officers. And the senior officers said, there's just no way we can do this. You know, you go right the way up to the chief constable. The chief constable wants to be a knight when he retires. And it was always a he in those days. He's not going to get his knighthood. You know, I know of an example where Savile acted as an enforcer for Charles and tried to intimidate two health chiefs by saying they wouldn't get a knighthood unless they did what Charles wanted. They didn't do what he wanted and they didn't get their knighthoods. It just makes me so angry hearing that. And it, it is about that reciprocal, well, what's in it for me as to why people keep things quiet 
And I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that he was such an opportunist because I think people always think with sex offenders they're just one thing. And actually, in my professional experience, they're not. They tick lots of boxes and lots of the time it comes down to accessibility and opportunity and availability. But they will target a victim preferential type and clearly his was little girls or younger girls, I should say, teenagers. But he would also take the opportunity And those who knew, I always say it's a concentric circles. They are invested, but who is going to believe the victim? So when I heard that you've only got just the women, just the women, as if it didn't count what their testimonies were. But yet, when you hear Sam Brown, I just had, my goodness, such a reaction. She she moved me to tears in terms of her account that is just so visceral, her living with that and... When you're seeing that person then on the TV, meeting Margaret Thatcher, meeting Prince Charles, and all these people giving testimony to what a fantastic person this individual is. And he was really lauded, wasn't he? I mean, he got his OBE, he got his knighthood. Everybody was saying what a fantastic person he was. For them, it just must have been, I mean, it's secondary victimization for sure, but it just must have been soul crushing. Absolutely. And, you know, If they arrived in court, that 14-year-old, as she was at the time, you know, with nothing to support her, and he would have, as his character witnesses, Margaret Thatcher, Prince Charles, the Pope, the head of the BBC, the head of every charity in Britain. It's just an impossible power imbalance there. He created this incredibly powerful position, which gave him the opportunity to abuse, but then on top of that, he was a planner. He planned everything, but then if opportunities came up on top of that, he would then take the opportunities on top. So he had a, he had a, a strategy, but then he was also able to operate beyond that. And, and, and talked- there was also a thrill, you know, all this stuff about him nearly giving it away, nearly being caught. There was that sort of teasing the dragon type thing in him that he wanted, he wanted it to be as near to the wire as possible. He didn't want to be caught. Some people say he wanted to be caught. He didn't want to be caught, but he wanted to go as close as he could. Oh, I believe that. I absolutely believe that. Understanding and having worked on so many cases with psychopaths, serial killers, he enjoyed those moments and you could see it, which is why it always comes down to actually power and control. That's what he was seeking. And you could see his smugness at him getting the the awards, the OBE, the knighthood. I could see how it validated him in every way. And it's very hard when you see that on camera. I mean, it's so obvious when you look back in hindsight, but actually for me, there were things, as you said, a 16-year-old boy seeing this guy and you realise that he's hiding things. And I wonder, did that was that something that then piqued your interest and you then decided to go into investigative journalists, always journalism with him in mind, or was that just something that came up later on? How did that come about? No, that, come that about? came up later. Uh, there was a very famous woman interviewer in Britain called Lynn Barber. And at that time, she was probably the best interviewer for print in the country. And all journalists would read her interviews weekend to try and learn from them, find out what they could you know, how to do it. And then suddenly in 1990, she did an interview with Jimmy Savile in which she mentioned that every journalist in Fleet Street thought he was a paedophile. 
And suddenly, for me, I just started thinking, well, hang on. I saw him taking 14-year-old girls out on his own in his Rolls Royce from Duncroft. That casts a completely different view on it. You've got to understand that we were told the paedophiles at that point, back in the 70s, were stranger danger. It was the weirdo in a white van who drove up and down the country, kids who'd never seen him before being given sweeties. Now, they exist, but they are a tiny, tiny percentage, as you know, of paedophiles. We weren't told it's mum's new boyfriend, it's the uncle character, which is far more likely, uh, but we didn't know that then. But by 1990, I suppose some of those perceptions were starting to change, and suddenly Savile started to look far more like a potential offender. And I started asking questions. And there were lots of stories in the BBC, but I worked in the wrong bit. I worked in news and current affairs. We didn't work with Savile. I didn't know people in Top of the Pops, which was the biggest music show uh, in Britain at the time, or on Jim will Fix It. On t- uh, you know, I didn't know those people, or in Radio 1, where he had a radio show. So I couldn't find any victims. I couldn't find any witnesses. And it sort of went away. Okay, I'm jumping in here. What strikes me is just how many people knew and were talking about Jimmy Savile's behaviour, but no one was really probing until Myrian and Liz came along. And so Myrian says, it sort of went away, but it didn't for long. And you'll hear more about that in the next episode. So join me next week for part two of this fascinating interview. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>